Not too long ago, I was driving home at night, and as I was coming up university uh, towards uh, where we live, our neighborhood, the moon looked humongous. It was the largest moon I'd ever seen. And I was freaking out. I said, oh my goodness, this is massive. It just looked incredible. So I pulled the car over, took my phone out, took a picture of it. Now, as you can imagine, the picture was totally lame. It, 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 it did not convey the moment whatsoever. Many of you have experienced that. Oh my goodness, look at the sun. Oh my goodness, look at the moon. It's a rainbow. Yeah, you're on, you're on vacation. Oh, look at this view. You take a picture of it. The mountains, the lake, the beach, click, 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 the waves. Uh, you know, oh, you're, you're on a plane for the very first time and you're flying through clouds and you look out the window. Oh, I got to take a picture of the wing with the clouds. Click, click, click. You take the photos. And what do we say every single time we go to show the picture to somebody and we look at it and it's so flat and uninspiring. We say the same thing every time we say, now this doesn't do it justice. Because when you take something that is very big and very grand or very complex, or very nuanced, and you cram it through a very small lens, it never does it justice. Our text this morning is from Micah chapter 6. It's a very, very famous passage where the people of God are called to do justice. <coughs> and so as we consider uh, what it means to do justice in light of the rest and the renewal that we are enjoying in the grace of God, in the forgiveness of God, the indwelling power of the Spirit of God, we're going to consider how it is that we live our lives as ministers of mercy and justice. And uh, if you're just new to Redeemer and joining us, we've been doing a series on mercy and justice, uh, building a theology systematically of how we understand mercy and justice. And I want to encourage you, um, if this is your first Sunday, to go back and uh, to follow the series, and I just hope that it's very encouraging to you. Uh, Micah chapter 6, starting in verse six, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is God's word. Now, first five chapters of Micah's book. This pronouncement of judgment on people who've committed injustice. Then you get to chapter six through seven and you find that judgment is also on God's people because they're also guilty of injustice. And we talked about this last week as we were studying the book of Amos because there are similar challenges going on with God's people when both of these uh, prophets were prophesying, although they were not prophesying um, simultaneously and at the same time. But historically speaking, the people of God had experienced a huge period of affluence and prosperity, and now God is going to bring an end to it. He's going to bring an end to it because they are very, very comfortable financially, and they are absolutely bankrupt spiritually. And so when you look at the Old Testament, here's what you're going to find right from the beginning. God is continually moving towards his people in scandalous saving grace. And after he saves his people in grace, he gives them his law. 
He gives them his law, not to save them because he already did that. He gives it to guide them. He gives it to guide them into flourishing and freedom and life with him. And so by the time you get to Micah chapter six, they are a long way away from God's law. They are a long way away from the heart of God. And I mentioned this last week, but it's worth repeating. You know, God had embedded things in his law to care for the poor. He had embedded things very intentionally so that his people would care for those who were destitute, for those who were uh, suffering at the hand of injustice. And in his law, he had things like gleaning laws where those who were wealthy didn't uh, take all the crops off their fields. They left some there intentionally for the poor. There was a, a year called the year of the Sabbath where every six years debts were forgiven. There was a year called the year of Jubilee where every 50 years people who had lost their land had their land returned to them. These these scandalously gracious and just um, measures were put into God's law. And in fact, uh, you know, I miss I misspoke by by calling it gracious because, um, in a sense, we think of taking care of the poor as charity. But God did not put these things in his in his law and call them charity. Every time you look at the way that God referred to how, how he. Um, saw the poor and how we were supposed to act towards the poor. He never called it charity. He called it justice. This is what is just. These things, of course, are scandalous to us. Absolutely scandalous as moderns to be like, I worked hard for my stuff. Let me keep my stuff. They don't have stuff. Maybe they should work hard and they can have their own stuff. God looks at that and God says, if you, for example, take the year of Jubilee with the the land, which is unthinkable to us as moderns to do this. But what God did was he said, If 50 years from now, you have the land that came from your ancestors and the land that came from somebody else's ancestors, for whatever reason, whether it was through sin or or futility or foolishness or or health challenges or mental health challenges, that that family lost their land, for whatever reason, you can actually, the just thing to do is to go from being an extravagantly wealthy person to being a wealthy person. You can actually afford to live very comfortably and wealthy and give them their land back. And when I was in Ethiopia, I had a a man named Michael who would always say this to me as we were in Ethiopia. He would say, I wish that some people would live simply so others could simply live. And so in the heart of God and in the law of God, what God was doing was um, not flattening the game so that everybody lived in cardboard boxes and nobody enjoyed prosperity. He was, what God was doing was what God called justice was caring for the poor, making sure that I wasn't living in such exorbitant, you know, uh, uh, I just said that word wrong, ridiculous wealth, unfathomable wealth, um, that there were people who couldn't even eat. And for me to somehow spiritually be okay with that. So that was what was going on. And by the time we get to Micah chapter six, the people of God are way off this track. They're just not even close. Um, and so the problem uh, when you get to uh, the text of Micah 6 here, is that they, they didn't enjoy their prosperity with God at the center. God had become an afterthought, and their great comfort was at the center. And so because of this idolatry of comfort and affluence, right, this led them to this sort of predatory pursuit of wealth. So instead of using their affluence and their wealth to alleviate the plight of the poor— which was the law of God, which reflected the heart of God, they actually used their affluence and their wealth to insulate themselves from the poor, um, which was nothing like God. And in fact, it disgusted God. 
And so for those of you who may be um, listening this morning, new to Christian faith, exploring Christian faith, or you're new to the scriptures, you need to know that God is not an insecure megalomaniac who you know needs us to worship him so he can be God. The reverse is true. We need to worship God so we can be fully human. 1940, C.S. Lewis, a great writer and apologist, wrote a book called The Problem of Pain, and he said this, a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic could put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. So you see, God doesn't need us to worship him. That, he didn't bring an end to Israel's prosperity because he's like, hey, you left me, you're worshiping other stuff, and I'm really insecure, and I need you back here now. It was not that at all. It was God was wanting to uh, bring a restoration to humanity and a flourishing in a way that was being um, forsaken. So in the same way that you can't put water in the gas tank of your car, that thing is going to sputter and cough out. The human soul sputters and coughs out when it replaces the worship of God with absolutely anything else. And so when we consider the problem of injustice in Micah's day or in our day, uh, what this text is actually providing us to realize is we don't need to be nicer. We need to be made new. And so... In regards to being made new, we recognize that improvement is not renewal. And so we need this deep renewal. This is what we need. Again, I'm going to borrow from C.S. Lewis when he uh, did a lecture in 1952, and it was embedded later in uh, Mere Christianity, a book that he wrote. He says this, Mere improvement is not redemption, though redemption always improves. God became a man to turn creatures into sons not simply to produce a better person of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of person. It's not like teaching a horse to jump higher and better. It's like turning a horse into a winged creature. And so what we need is to be made new. And this morning, let our prayer be that God would, by his spirit, continually make us new. So we want to look at this question at the core of the book of Micah, this question of the text we read this morning, what does the Lord require? Now, after that question gets asked, what does the Lord require? There's three answers. The first two are the wrong answers, and the third one is the right one. And so let's look at it. When you look at um, verse 6, with what shall I come before the Lord, the exalted God? And so to come before God, in in the Hebrew, to come before him, that meant how can I be in relationship with him? How can I possibly uh, walk with him? There's this huge gap, emphasis on the phrase exalted God. Huge, massive gap. The universe, scientists tell us, 93 billion light years big and constantly expanding. So if God created all that, is he the kind of person that we just casually move in and out of relationship with? Do we just sort of casually worship him when we sort of feel like it? If it's not sunny outside or we don't have anything better to do, okay, you know, I'm going to give God my time. You know what? I won't take a me day. I'll let the Lord's day be actually the Lord's day. Is that the way that we would relate to this exalted God? You know, the ancients didn't relate to God the way that moderns do. As moderns, we're like, hey, you know, God's kind of like the convenience store. If I need something, I'll go to him. If I've got a hankering for something, I'll pray. But but I'm pretty much going to live in self-sufficiency unless I kind of need him. But the ancients were like, that's insanity. If If God created, you know, everything that we see in the cosmos, then does that God not require something else? So at the beginning of this question, what does the Lord require? You know, it's establishing this gap. When you look at verse 8, this this unfathomable gap, it's, it's highlighted between the immense eternal by calling us mortal. 
So how does the mortal relate to the eternal? Here's the first wrong answer. The first wrong answer is, well, God can be bought. He can be bought. You look at the text. Everybody has their price. God probably has their price. Give him wealth. Give him good deeds. Live a good life. Right? Be a moral person. Buy him off. Look at the text. Burnt offerings, thousands of rams, rivers of oil. This is wealth. It's saying, can I just, you know, sort of be extravagant with my generosity towards the temple of God? Can I just give lots of money to the church and volunteer on Sunday morning and that's going to satisfy God? No, it will not. It absolutely will not. All the wealth, God can't be bought. All the wealth in the world, all the moral living in the world is not going to suffice. You see the text here, if you look back on, he uses the words burnt offering. Can I give burnt offerings? See, burnt offerings, if you study them in the Old Testament, they weren't, they weren't sin offerings. It wasn't about sin. A burnt offering was about saying, I'm going to give my whole life to you. So the, what, the wrong answer is, well, what if I just sort of surrender and kind of give you, give you all of my wealth and all of my, uh, and all of my good deeds? Is that going to be enough? And, the, and surprisingly, the text is, no, that will not be enough. Why not? That leads us to the second answer, which is also the wrong answer. The second answer is, well, can I offer you my firstborn? You know, the, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Hey, what if I just think of the most painful thing I can think of? What if I can just conjure up this life of incredible suffering and then just sort of do that? What if I relate to God with knuckle dragging and, and woe is me? Will that make God happy? What if, what if I sort of um, do all of these things as a way of atoning for my sin? Can I atone for my own sin? And the text says, no, you can't. You can't do it. You think about this um, even on a human level, right? On a human level of, of atoning for your sin. There are minor and small things that we actually can atone for. Right? If I back out of my driveway and I hit my neighbor's car, I can atone for that. I can knock on the door and say, I'm really sorry. Look what I did. Um, let me pay for it. Like I can actually atone for something that small. But relationally, there are lots of relationships all in this little church here, Redeemer, where we've got uh, done things to others that we can't really atone for. If you've gossiped or spoken about someone in such a way that it has affected the way they are viewed by other people or by their colleagues at work or by people on campus, you can go and apologize for that. You can be forgiven, right? But you, you might not be able to do anything about the impact that's had on their career, or you might not be able to do anything to atone for the impact that's had on other relationships in their life. You can only, you can only ask for forgiveness and they can grant it, but there are, there are scores of examples relationally where we can forgive but not fix. Mm -hmm. You've got lots of relationships in your life of people you have forgiven, but they're not coming over for Father's Day today. They've forgiven you, but they're not inviting you over for Father's Day today. There's lots of examples where we can't even on a human level atone for the things we've done. So what this text is saying is infinite God, infinite debt. What are we going to do about it? This thing just spirals down. So what's the answer? The answer is in verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's break this out. When did he show them that? The text says, I've shown you. So look back over Israel's history. When did you show us this? You go right back from, to, to the beginning of the Exodus when God says, I mean, you can go even before the Exodus, but I'm talking specifically about uh, in the context of the people of God being saved out of slavery in the Exodus, saved out of certain death in Egypt. 
What God showed them was, I am a God of scandalous, undeserved grace. I will save you. I will forgive you. And what you must do is trust in me, trust in that. You have to put your trust in your life and orient your life around the God who saves. And then over and over and over and over through the Old Testament, it's just a nonstop spiral of Israel's sin and God chasing them and saving them again. And so the what he has shown them was you've got to trust in the saving God. We, of course, are on the other side of the cross. So we have even a greater understanding of who the saving God is beyond just that immediate audience in Micah's day. Right? They've been saved from sheer grace apart from the law, and then the law was given to them to guide them. Of course, they kept running away from the law. So not only has God you know, repeatedly saved his people uh, for millennia by the time they were reading this prophecy or listening to this prophecy, but we actually have, right in the middle of Micah's book, a prophecy of otherworldly grace in Jesus Christ. And if you were to flip back a chapter from the text that I read this morning, in chapter 5, it says this, from verses 2 to 4, Out of Bethlehem will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. And he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. There would come a shepherd king. One who would lead his people with transcendence and tenderness. The one who would do justice perfectly. The one who would love mercy perfectly. The one who would walk humbly with God perfectly and do it all perfectly for us. And then this shepherd king would give his perfect track record to us. This, of course, being Jesus Christ. It is his life and death and resurrection that enables us to be able to say what the text says. Look at the, look at the last verse in the text that we read. It says, walk humbly with your God. That's covenant language. It's because of Jesus that we can say of God that he is our God. And your God, walk humbly with your God. That doesn't mean your version of God, your ideas about God, your personal subjective way that you have described is comfortable for you to kind of worship God or see the laws of God. It doesn't mean any of that at all. This, these small modern contracts of God who happens to agree with all of our views and doesn't happen to require any, uh, any of us to change. That is not the God this is talking about. What it means, your God. It's not your ideas of God. It means because of Jesus Christ, you can stand before the exalted God. You can uh, be in a close and intimate relationship with this covenant-keeping God, the saving God. And so now, as God's children, who are loved and accepted and forgiven and free by his grace... We seek the guidance of his law. So now in closing, we're going to look at these three things of doing justice, of loving mercy, and walking, walking humbly with our God in light of the grace of his cross, in light of being united uh, to Christ and being children of God. So first, to do justice. Let's go back to um, the, the example of taking photos. You take a photo of, whenever, whenever you say of a photo or of a cover song or of, Something you say, it doesn't do it justice. Really what you're saying is there's more depth that's being conveyed here. There's more richness that's being conveyed here. There's a lot more that's missing 
what you're looking at or what you're listening to. It doesn't do it justice because it's been shrunk down through the small lens. The reason I bring that up is because in the Hebrew, the word justice, mishpat, if you look through the Old Testament, it's constantly referring to vulnerable people groups. It's constantly referring to the poor, the oppressed. It's constantly uh, referring to the orphan, the widow, the refugee, ethnic groups. And it says we're supposed to do justice to them. We're not supposed to think about their plight, think about their life, think about their situation with such naive simplicity that we ram jam their situation down through the small filter so that the way that we speak about them doesn't do them justice. The way that we speak about their problems of oppression doesn't do it justice. The way, and the, the way that we act doesn't do it justice. We're supposed to actually do it justice. And so what this causes for us to consider is we have to examine how we think about these vulnerable groups in order to do them justice. We have to examine the way that we speak about these vulnerable groups in order to do them justice. We have to think about how we act. Does the way that we understand or think or speak about the oppression of the indigenous people here in Canada or the black communities here in Canada and the United States or the refugees that are here even in our own city, when we consider the plight of the poor, when we consider them and think about them and speak about them and act about them, are we doing them justice? This is what the text provokes us to consider. Or is the way that we talk about the injustice of the day that we're living in right now in 2020, is it so flat, like a f- landscape photo that isn't, doesn't do it justice? Is it so dispassionate that in the same way that a photo of a rainbow doesn't give rise to any emotion because there's nothing good about that compared to looking at the real thing is, is the way that we speak about the injustices in the black or indigenous communities today um, so flat that it doesn't give any rise to any sort of emotion or action. This is what it means to do justice. It means that we consider these things, which leads to the second thing to do justice and to love mercy. Look at that language. This is not intellectual language. This is heart language. It's not an intellectual conversation about mere acts of mercy. What the text is saying is, do we actually love mercy? Do we love to do acts of mercy? Do we love those people, the objects of the mercy? Is there love in our hearts, right? We have this love language. It means there's an appetite. You have, you have appetite for certain thing and not another. You're drawn to certain thing and not another. You're attracted to certain thing and not another. It's to love it. So this language is this loving language. Are we drawn? Do we, do we love mercy and those who require the mercy? And so this is, I think, where we see that in order to love mercy, that means that you're loving people, whether it's in this church community or the greater KW community, it means you're loving people who are bringing nothing to the table. They're not adding to the relationship. In fact, they're draining you. They're not giving anything back to you because they're in such a state of being destitute. So in order for us to do that, we can't just try to be nicer. We need to be made new. Because if you're like me, you read the implications of this text and what it means and your throat starts to close up because you begin to realize how unloving you can be. You begin to realize how unmerciful you can be. You begin to realize your capacity for selfishness 
is far greater than you'd ever care to admit. That's how I felt preparing for this sermon this whole last week. And the truth is we, we can't love mercy by trying harder to be nice. We can only love mercy if we're made new. And I have good news, church, that leads us to the final thing. That leads us to the last thing. Walking humbly with our God. To walk is a metaphor. To walk is a metaphor for an intimate relationship that is ongoing and it's going someplace. It's deepening, it's, it's in being enriched, and it's going someplace. And so what we have been given by our great God, our great saving God, is we've been given the gifts of prayer and of meditation. We've been given these spiritual disciplines, not as barter, so we, we you know, barter things from God, but as bread to nourish us in God, to renew us, to make us new. As C.S. Lewis said, not horses that can jump higher and higher, winged creatures, different, relating to the poor and the outcast and the refugee differently because our hearts are being transformed by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And so walking humbly with God, it's not a lifelong commitment of rolling up our sleeves and trying harder to be nice. It is the ongoing work of the Spirit making us new. Nobody is saved by doing acts of mercy and justice. But the byproduct of saving grace looks like acts of mercy and justice. Jesus Christ, he's the shepherd king that was prophesied about in Micah 5. Jesus Christ, through his sacrificial and atoning death, he's taken the guilt of our sin. He's loved perfectly. He lived a perfectly obedient life. He walked humbly with his God. He did all these things for us so that the wisdom of this word would guide us. Because united to Christ, we want to reflect the one who saved us. And so what do we do and where do we begin? You know, as I, as I, is this my second closing? This is my second closing. Well, I'm closing now. What do we do and where do we begin? Well, uh, justice and mercy is going to look different for everybody on this call because vocationally, you may be able to implement it in very practical ways as you look across your workplace in ways where there is injustice, right? To oppressed people groups. Relationally, it's for most of us, it's going to look like conversations when we consider the days that we live in and the conversations that are constantly arising around injustice for us to use our voice to do justice to those who are being oppressed and to um, speak with a dignity and a grace and a, and a mercy and a love towards their plight. Practically speaking, we have refugees in this city. We have at-risk youth at the One Roof Shelter. As a church, there's things that all of you are doing as financially we're supporting those refugees. Last week, we sent out and I sent out an email and it's got the ongoing shopping list of needs that they need where we as a community very easily can add to our shopping list the very simple things that they need on an ongoing basis. And we can drive to the, those sites in Kitchener and Waterloo and we can drop those, those things off and we can care for them in very practical ways. We can do justice and mercy in very small uh, and very small and simple ways. We can do these things, of course. But where does this all begin? We can talk all day about the things that we can do, but what is the motivator? Where does it begin? For God to do a work in us so that we become new and so that we care. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to act justly and to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray.